Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Later this hour, we'll head out of this world and hear about the Illuminarium's latest immersive exhibition, Space. And then, to keep with that interstellar theme, our series Speaking of Music today features musician Indy Starr. But first, in the aftermath of the 2016 presidential election, Pod Save America emerged to educate, engage, and entertain the progressive-minded community. The flagship podcast of Crooked Media has an enormous following thanks to its smart combination of political insight and witty hosts made up of former Obama staffers John Lovett, John Favreau, Dan Pfeiffer, and Tommy Vitor. Pod Save America, a live and on tour, arrives in Atlanta for a show at Cobb Energy Arts Center this Saturday, August 13th, with special guest Stacey Abrams. City Lights host Lois Reitzes recently caught up with John Lovett via Zoom to talk about the upcoming show, and she began by asking him about his recovery from COVID. So thank you for asking. Yes, I am. I'm fully, I'm fully recovered. You know, look, it it seems like uh, luck of the draw, how bad people get it. And I, I drew good cards. So thank you for asking. But uh, I feel very excited to be back to normal, back on the road and and with now a superpower immune system for a little while. You know, I feel <laughs> I feel vaguely invincible. I want to drive very fast. I want to bungee jump, you know, because of all these antibodies that I have. No kidding. Well, don't forget to wear your cape. Glad to hear you're feeling better. And how is your dog, Pundit? Pundit the dog is great. She's not a fan of the live touring because she's stuck in Los Angeles. But uh, I decided to name the dog Pundit because I thought people on social media would like it. I do everything for likes and for clicks and for faves, you know? (laughs) That's what I live for. That's the only thing important to me now. I think anything in the real world is really something that I do to get ready to take it to the internet. And I actually want to get Pundit a sibling. And I think the right name for a Pundit sibling will be Troll. You know, (laughs) Pundit is a very sweet golden doodle. Golden doodles are made by science. They are engineered to be cute and adorable. I want to get a big monster of a mutt and name that dog Troll. I think that that's the next step. I love it. Well, I think Pundit is an angel. Oh, thank you for saying yes. She has her own catchphrase. That's how you know you've really made it. 
<laughs> no kidding. And she's had some very impressive people say that. That's true. There are people who may not know that Pod Save America started as the Keeping It 1600 podcast on the Ringer with John Favreau and Dan Pfeiffer in 2016. Will you talk about the origin story of former Obama staffers doing a podcast and how you and Tommy Vitor joined them in the endeavor? Sure. So back in 2016, John Favreau, Tommy Vitor, Dan Pfeiffer, and I, we all worked together in the Obama White House. And we all went our separate ways when we left politics and trying different phases of our careers. And yet all of us, like Michael Corleone says in Godfather Part Three, like just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. We all (laughs) felt this draw to stay involved, especially in 2016 when the stakes were total. And so we talked about, should we do a TV show? Should we... What should we do? Should we do a podcast? We Dan and John ended up starting this podcast. Tommy and I ended up joining it. And it was really kind of just an outlet for us to talk about politics in the run-up to the 2016 election, almost, almost as a hobby, just because we were passionate about it. We were pretty frustrated as news consumers and as people that had been involved in campaigns with just the way politics is covered in this country. It treats everything like a game. It treats people like cynical observers, like Uh, like they're watching a nature documentary instead of treating us all like what we are, which is frustrated participants. And so when the television and when social media are just drowning us in stories that never talk about the stakes, that never cover the actual policy differences, but are focused on who's winning and who's losing and who made a gaffe and who said what and, and, you know, putting the camera on Trump's empty podium for 20 minutes before he shows up, we decided we wanted to have a different kind of show. And then after the election, we were obviously shocked and disappointed and upset and angry. And uh, John and Tommy and I were going to record an episode in the aftermath of the of the loss. We thought it was going to be an episode about Hillary Clinton becoming president. Instead, we ended up driving toward the studio. I, in my panic and distraction forgot to get gas the car runs out of gas and john tommy and i pushed my car to the side of the road in front of the cnn building where people had gathered around watching these videos of of trump himself surprised discovering that he's about to be president and we ended up walking to the studio and as we did we talked about what we wanted to do next and what we said throughout 2016 is something we really believed which was donald trump was an emergency the fact that he got within five miles of the White House was an emergency. It represented an incredible failure of our political system, of the Republican Party, of the media, of our society, of our economy. It was a collective failure. And we all had a duty to step up and fight back, especially when we knew people would be really despondent and upset and not sure what to do. So many people were asking us, what do we do? What do we do? And we didn't have the answers, but we decided that we thought maybe we could create a place where a bunch of people who felt like we did could come together and join and be part of a community that wasn't just about what was broken, wasn't just about being angry, wasn't just about being upset, but was really focused on turning those emotions, turning those feelings into collective action, into figuring out what we could do about it. And so we launched Pod Save America. We launched it as part of a new media company called Crooked Media. And you know, the, the three of us, we didn't look. We don't have MBAs. And we're, we don't have we didn't have a business model, 
the three of us just said, we think there's a lot of people out there that feel like we did. And we gave ourselves a few months to figure out if the show would work, if the company would work. It took off. And very quickly, we realized we had this incredible opportunity and obligation to figure out how to harness this audience and direct their efforts into ways to fight back. And so the company grew. We launched Vote Save America, which is a platform where we try to give you the absolute best and most useful things you can do to get involved, like the best places to volunteer, the best places to donate your hard-earned money to make the biggest difference in politics, and, the, and a community that you can join with others to kind of commiserate and feel kind of connected to this incredibly big and difficult, at times frustrating, at times hopeful fight. So you're still in public service. Oh, sure. Thank you. That's nice of you to say. <laughs> John, you started as a speechwriter for Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2008, and then John Favreau hired you to be part of the speechwriting team in the Obama administration. What was it like to go from working against Senator Obama in the campaign to working in his administration after that sometimes bitter primary? Well, first of all, first of all, here's what I'd say. Maybe there were moments of, of peak. Maybe there were moments in which you could get close to describing something as acrimony. But wow, was the debate between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama high academic policy intellectual compared to the pig slop mud slinging nightmare factory that we have now so you if you were there were a few very very heated moments but the truth is i think it was a ultimately a pretty i think sometimes you know you're invested in a campaign and you believe in your candidate and emotions get high. But the truth is, it was ultimately not as contentious as a lot of other primaries we've seen. And we know that because right after it ended, Hillary Clinton ends up becoming Barack Obama's secretary of state. And, you know, so I joined then Senator Hillary Clinton's Senate office back in 2005. I had kind of lucked into a junior speech writing job long before the presidential campaign. That's how I ended up helping out on the presidential campaign in 2007 and 2008. So I was with Hillary Clinton for a couple years on the Senate side before I, I, I worked on the campaign. And after the campaign ended, you kind of take a few weeks. You, you have the benefit of the fact that your uh, principal uh, is taking a break too. And you have some time to kind of unwind, disconnect from the campaign. And then they reach out and they say, hey, like we we are looking to bring on uh, speechwriters to join us in the White House. And the truth is, there was no group of people that got better experience to be involved in the White House than all of the uh, campaign speechwriters that were involved in the in the presidential campaign in 2007 and 2008. We had these, it was such a long and hard fought primary that we all got this incredible practice. And so they have this group of, of incredible White House speechwriters that were on the Obama campaign. They're looking to add a couple more well, there's this group of people that were in the exact same trenches as you. They just happened to be on the other side, working just as hard to, to write rhetoric and make the best argument they could. So I felt really fortunate that they reached out. I think it was magnanimous. And I threw my hat in. And I feel very grateful to this day that uh, John Favreau decided to take a chance on a Hillary Clinton speechwriter because I got to work in the White House. And 
it led us to be friends and to start this company. Mm. On the speechwriting team, you were the one who wrote President Obama's jokes. How would you describe your task of incorporating comedy into remarks for such an eloquent man? Well, it was... So first of all, I was one of many people who wrote jokes. I did get to kind of take the lead on those correspondence dinner speeches, which is, for me, a lot of it was obviously writing jokes, but it was also gathering jokes from some of the funniest people around and getting a huge a huge number of jokes from all kinds of people and then going through them. We were very fortunate to be writing jokes for President Obama, who has incredible comic timing. He just has that natural, charismatic, laid-back way of delivering a joke. I think one of the reasons he was became president is because he could see the absurdities in politics in ways that people that were in Washington or involved in politics for a long time may have lost sight of. He never did. He always understood how silly and ridiculous politics could be. And one of the reasons a joke in a campaign speech or in a debate can be so powerful is it's this incredible shorthand for a subtext between you and your audience. It's a way of saying, hey, like we find the same thing stupid. We find the same things ridiculous. We find the same things absurd. We're on the same team. That's why a joke hurts so much when it doesn't work, right? It's because all of a sudden there's this dissonance between you and the audience and the audience is feeling disconnected from you, feeling like you're not part of the same group, not, not part of the same team. It's a shorthand. So we felt very lucky getting to write jokes for President Obama, who had a great sense of the absurdity of his job, of the world of Washington, of the press, of Democrats, of Republicans. But I always found that, you know, I have a pretty, I think, a, a harsher tone. My ideal joke is just President Obama throwing the podium over and cursing these people out and, and walking off. That's what I, that's always what I want to do. And I, but, but it was a great balance because when I was in the White House, David Axelrod, who was a longtime advisor to President Obama, he would also write jokes and, and, and help think through what these correspondence dinners would be like. And he had this great avuncular, warm sense of humor, kind of more in the spirit of like political dad jokes, for lack of a better term. And I always felt like there was this great balance. There was this sort of angel on the shoulder, devil on the shoulder pull between jokes that were incredibly mean, incredibly harsh, and then jokes that were, I think, a little bit sweeter, more old fashioned, more avuncular. And I think brought President Obama would always strike this great balance. He would start by being self-deprecating. And then they would always have some really hard edged lines here and there to make sure that we were um, kind of, I think, hitting every note. Is there a joke you could share you were most proud of helping craft? I don't believe in taking credit for any specific joke because in the end, these speeches are a real team effort. And truthfully, I don't really remember because I always felt like what I was doing with John Favreau, with, with Axelrod, with someone named David Litt, who was also a speechwriter for a time, and a, and a bunch of other people that were throwing in really great ideas, is you're kind of gathering all this material, writing some yourself, and then trying to figure out what story you're trying to tell. And what was always most satisfying, yeah, there were great jokes that really landed, but what I always loved is we would try to find a story we could tell that night that really resonated with the moment. You would start with some self-deprecating jokes. You would make fun of the people in the room, and then you would land on some kind of a theme. So like, you know, in, in, in President Obama's first year, it was, here's what we did in my first 100 days. Here's what's in my next 100 days. In later years, it was about him 
becoming a, a lame duck. We filmed this great video with John Boehner, with President Obama kind of wandering around the White House. So I have really fond <laughs> memories of all of it, but I'm just proud of having been a part of the whole process without, truthfully, right now talking to you, I'm afraid that if I said I, I wrote something, I would actually just be taking credit because it's such a, a race to the finish. Like, we, you know, you're, you're gathering material, you're putting it together, you're running to meet with the president. He's saying yes, he's saying no, he's pulling things out. You're trying new things. You're you're getting new material. The news cycle is shifting, and all of a sudden, you're cutting some joke. You're adding another joke, and then all of a sudden, it's over. You've sent the final, and then you just wait with bated breath to watch the president deliver these lines and just hope that they land. Well, you're being very generous. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with former Obama staffer John Lovett. One thing came to mind, and if it could jog your memory, were you connected to the joke about Rahm Emanuel losing a different <laughs> finger? I can't take credit for that joke, but there's a great joke, which, you know, Rahm Emanuel famously, he tells the story, Rahm Emanuel being President Obama's chief of staff, beginning of the administration, goes on to become the mayor of Chicago, but he's famously gruff, famously foul-mouthed. And he also famously lost a finger due to a, a meat slicing accident followed by a lake swim that caused him to lose part of a finger, part of a middle finger. And there's a famous joke that President Obama once told, which was Rahm Emanuel lost part of his middle finger, rendering him mute, <laughs> which is just the best. Just a fantastic joke. A ten, out, 10 out of 10. But you didn't write that. No, I didn't write it. Oh, I didn't write oh, it. Okay. In addition to being a presidential speechwriter, John, you've been a stand-up comic, TV sitcom creator and writer. Yeah. How do you draw on those varied experiences for your podcasting and live shows? I've been I've had a very charmed life. I've had a, been able to do a bunch of different things and try a bunch of different careers and if there's a connection between all of them, you know, I started, I started as a math person. I studied math in college. I, I ended up publishing a short paper with my professor after I graduated. I loved math. I then go into politics. I write speeches for a while. I, I, I try my hand at writing for television. I've been doing stand up. I've been doing these touring shows and now we make these podcasts. And I think if there's one thing that ties them all together is I, I feel as though what we're always trying to do is find an interesting way to tell the truth, to tell the story of what's happening in a way that's compelling and interesting and engaging and memorable, and to strike that balance between finding the humor, finding what is poignant and emotional and resonant for people, what is the real story, the pain, the experience underneath the surface, and to do it in a way that's pithy without being glib, to do it in a way that's vulnerable without being saccharine, to do it in a way that's moral without being sanctimonious, to do it in a way that's funny without being snarky or sarcastic. And that's a really hard thing to do and you don't always get it right. And sometimes you get it really wrong. But in all these kinds of writing and all these kinds of storytelling and, and whether it's a conversation on Pot Save America or a character we wrote for Love It or Leave It or just a conversation I'm having with the audience on stage at a live show, I feel like I'm doing my best work 
I'm doing the best I can do as someone whose job it is to talk into a microphone to find ways to help people understand what's happening. Not because I'm so, so I, not because I know better, not because I have any great magical insight, but I'm trying in the moment to think out loud or to think through how I'm feeling about this political moment, the pain and the concern and the anxiety and the optimism I feel. And if I can find ways to do that with humor or with just <laughs> wearing my heart on my sleeve at times, whatever it may be, I feel like that is the thing we're trying to do. Well, those are great aspirations. Clearly, millions of followers agree with you. Well, I'm, I'm also very lucky that I get to kind of spout off, but I've got I've got John and Dan and Tommy who are just very smart and say very smart things. And they're always there as a backstop, you know, because I can just go off. But, you know, we all, I just tend to think whatever Dan says is probably right. And maybe I can add a joke to that, you know. <laughs> I'm curious about how tapings on tour differ from the studio shows you do in L.A. How do you prepare for the Pod Save America live shows? You know, it's interesting. The preparing, is it, it looks very similar, but the experience is very different. So just for people listening... We do these live shows and it's really exciting because podcast is something you listen on your own time, by yourself, going to the supermarket, walking a dog, going to the gym, going to the bathroom. It happens to us. <laughs> All right. We know that it's happening. We have to admit that it's happening. <laughs> but when you come to the live show, you get to see a live taping of something with a bunch of other people who have been listening along with you. And there's this really incredible sense of community. So we prepare, prepare in a lot of the same ways. We see what's happening in the news. We figure out what's important. We figure out what we want to talk about. We figure out what great clips we can use to make fun of the news or, or make a point about the news. We think about a, a game we can play with the audience to bring the audience in, into the show a bit more, which is something we can't do in the studio. But ultimately, what makes it so much fun is we get to all be together. And all these people that have been paying attention and, and, and care about what's happening to this country can all get together and be in one room and kind of be part of this community. And that's why we love doing the live shows. That's why it's always so great when when Stacey Abrams comes and joins because she's somebody people really look up to and has been so great about motivating people and getting people in the fight, too. Uh, so that's that's, I think, the big difference. Fans of yours know that you are a food enthusiast, unafraid of controversial takes, sure. Sure. even if that means alienating locals. Johnny took chutzpah to make fun of Connecticut pizza at an event in New Haven. Mm -hmm. Now, you are candid about being addicted to Diet Coke, do you, yes. Do you have any opinions about any other food in Atlanta? Well, what do, what do we consider to be Atlanta's most famous food? What is the equivalent in Atlanta of Connecticut pizza? Obviously, look, Atlanta is Coca Cola is a Coca Cola town, which I love. I'm a I love Diet Coke. Is that is Diet Pepsi all right? It's, it never is. I'll drink it. I'll drink it, but it's <laughs> never okay. And I and look, I'll drink a Coke Zero, I'll drink a zero a zero sugar Coke or whatever whatever they're doing in those black cans to appeal to the straight men. I'm fine with that. Whatever they need to do to get people to drink more of this stuff, I'm fine with. But it'll always be Diet Coke for me. All right, my first love. Well, 
Okay, here's something quintessentially Atlanta. There's this old drive-in near Georgia Tech, the Varsity, and it's kind of an experience because this is nothing like a Chicago hot dog joint. This, <laughs> this is Atlanta, and you get your hot dog with a little bit of chili on it if you want. Yes. And the servers are very colorful, and they have the best, greasiest fried onion rings and fried pie. So there are some delicacies for you. You're speaking my language, okay? This is what I want. Look, here's the thing. I may be, I may be from New York and Los Angeles, and look, I'll have... I'll, I'll have the green juice. I'll have the smoothie. I'll go to the vegan restaurant. <laughs> but in my heart, the the foods of the South, the foods of the Midwest, that is what my heart wants. Now, of course, I have my heart, I think, is uh, wants more than my body can handle. OK, I'm not built. I'm not built for this, but I power through. All right. I power through because this is this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is what I need. This is why I travel. Some people go to museums. I travel for this. I would like the fried onion rings as soon as possible. It's cultural anthropology. (laughs) Right. And there's great Southern food here that's a little higher, a little more high-toned, if you will. You've said there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who think lox and cream cheese on a cinnamon raisin bagel is gross and people who've tried it. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever put a tiny bit of jam on the cream cheese? Of, co- of course I have, Lois. Of course I have. Thank God. You, you know, there's no combination involving a bagel that I'm not going to have tried, all right? The lox, lox and cream cheese on a cinnamon raisin bagel is fantastic. It, it just is. is it's salty and it's sweet. It's salty and it's savory and it's sugary, all right? Two great tastes that taste great together. It's a winning combination, and that tiny bit of jam adds another layer of flavor, complexity. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a sophisticated, I have a sophisticated palate. I appreciate you for recognizing that. And that's why the next time I have lox and cream cheese and a cinnamon raisin bagel, I'm going to throw some jam on there, all right? Because I know a good idea when I hear it. Oh, I feel honored. Now, in addition to Pod Save America, you host Love It or Leave It, a comedic take on the week's political events with witty games and rants. Full disclosure, I'm a fan of the highest order, and I love the musical theme. Tell us about the music. Well, first of all, thank you for listening. When we started, there was this great band called Sure Sure, and I was just friends with them on Twitter. We just had known each other on Twitter. They were funny guys. And they reached out and they were like, they said they had this idea for a theme song. And, or maybe I had reached out to them because I was saying, hey, I'm doing this show. I love you guys. Do you have any thoughts? And they just sent this theme. That was it. They just had this idea. They sent this theme. And it was magical. It was so funny. It was so good. It was so perfect. <laughs> Believe it, believe it, believe it, believe it. 
I feel so lucky that we get to use this. And now they're like a touring band. They, they've gone on to become successful, but they just wrote, you know, they were in their garage and they wrote this great theme about Love It or Leave It. And I feel so lucky and I will never change it. It will be the theme song for the rest of my life, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Is it your ringtone? It's not. Here's the thing. All right. Would I love it to be my ringtone? Sure. But there's only so much self-congratulations you can have. Imagine <laughs> your, if your phone rings in front of people and it's your own podcast theme song. That's, uh, I think that's too much. I think that's too I much. I think you're modest. Over the past five years, how has Love It or Leave It evolved from your original vision of it? Well, when we started the show, the original idea was just a Friday night pub quiz, a kind of weekend review. And when we started, we just had guests come on as a panel. We would quiz the audience. We would quiz the guests. And we've slowly but surely become a, a bigger production So as the show's had a bigger audience. And so now it's much more like a, a big week in review where sometimes we'll have a choir or a band or a singer do an opening number, a parody song about the week's news. I now do a monologue with jokes that we kind of run through the week's news. And then we have all kinds of guests. We'll have serious guests, we'll have comics, we'll have actors playing characters. We'll quiz the audience. We'll we'll rant and rave at the end of the episode. You know, during this was a live show. It was originally conceived of as a live show. The first episode was live, and we never really strayed from that until the the pandemic. And then all of a sudden, we had to figure out what it meant to be a studio show, really a, a show from home, and how do we do jokes? How do we do comedy without an audience to laugh, you know, monologue jokes without a crowd can be pretty tough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we, what we ended up doing during the pandemic is we would bring on comedians to kind of judge the jokes. So instead of having an audience laughing or not, the way we would figure out if something worked is I would do a joke and we would just have a comedian rate it. Was that good? Did you like it? Was it bad? Could we have done better? What's your way of changing it? Which was really fun. But because we were stuck recording from home, we tried a bunch of different things during the pandemic, characters and games and, and segment ideas. And then a lot of that has helped us evolve the, the live show now that we're back in front of audiences. When we were trying to figure out how to be live again, we started calling it Love It or Leave It Live or Else because we decided that we just had to do it live and we'd have to figure it out. But there were a lot of challenges and difficulties and concerns about returning to a live show, but we were going to figure it out. So at first we did live shows in my backyard. <laughs> we would just literally set up mics and, and, and friends would come and just sit outside in my backyard. We did it at an outdoor movie theater for a while because we weren't yet going back inside of theaters. And now we're back in theaters, which has been really fun. But I, I mean, the biggest way that it's, it's evolved, especially since the pandemic is I feel really lucky. I, it feels more special. It feels I feel more grateful to be back in front of crowds because you really miss it and you don't understand. We don't really, we're not good at imagining what we're missing. You know, when we're stuck at home, it's hard to imagine the things we're not doing, but then you get in front of a crowd again and the audience comes back and you just feel really fortunate. You just feel the excitement, especially for people who are maybe going to one of their first events uh, over the past couple of years. And it makes the live experience, I think a little bit more poignant and a little bit more special. 
John Lovett speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzis. Pod Safe America, alive and on tour, is at Cobb Energy Center for the Arts this Saturday, August 13th. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll get ready for Blast Off and hear about the Illuminarium's latest immersive exhibition, Space. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes. In for Lois Reitzis. Great to have you along. Since opening last summer, the immersive theater experience known as the Illuminarium has become a fixture on the Atlanta Beltline. Using 4K interactive projections, 360-degree audio, and in-floor vibrations, the Illuminarium experience aims to transport people to another world. In the past, these worlds have included an African safari, as well as a deep dive into the art of Georgia O'Keeffe. But now the Illuminarium is leaving our world and exploring the great unknown with their newest offering, Space. Melissa Graff is a creative director and a visual effects supervisor at Illuminarium, and she's joining me now via Zoom to shed some starlight on their new trip through the galaxy. Welcome to City Lights, Melissa. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So would you start out and give us just a brief overview of the experience? Sure. So um, space is a really exciting uh, spectacle. I think we're all really, really excited about this one. It's something that I think the one thing that the big takeaway is that it's not a science show and it's not a planetarium. It's so much more fun and so much more immersive than that. It, um, it really gives you that experience that, that I think a lot of us wanted when we were a kid and you dream of growing up and being an astronaut, right? I mean, who didn't want that when they were a child? So you come in and we have um, a small first room where you get to actually blast off in a rocket ship and go into outer space. So you start on earth and then you're floating amongst the stars. And that's something that, you know, these days you can't do unless maybe you're a billionaire. <laughs> um, so it kind of democratizes that experience for everyone else. And it's really immersive, you know, again, with like you were mentioning the rumbling under the floor as the rocket blasts off and it, it, the whole room tumbles and, and you can see the, the jewel of the solar system or earth, you know, from, from miles above it. And then when you go into um, the second room, which is the big one where you spend most of your time, um, it just immerses you amongst the stars. You know, you get to see constellations, you get to see all of the planets up close you go through a nebula, 
Um, you're amongst the outer Kuiper belt, you know, which is where Pluto is. And it just takes you through this, this solar journey. And again, it's so immersive. You get to interact with the Kuiper belt rocks under your feet. You break them apart. Um, you can send stars shooting across on the floor below you. You can light up galaxies that are distant below your feet. There's also a scent system in there. So I don't know if anyone knows what space smells like, but it's a bit metallic. Then there's that amazing audio system as well. So of course, everyone knows there's no real sound in space, but we do have some amazing recognizable songs like Fly Me to the Moon by Frank Sinatra. We also have some composed music, and then we actually use some audio frequency from, from NASA. So the the scene where you go around and look at all the planets up close, you can actually hear the frequencies that were recorded. Um, so it's it's just a, a tremendous experience and it, it's so fulfilling for me. You know, I worked on it for well over a year in, in the, the nitty gritty of it all, but it's so fun to go in and see other people experiencing it. And, you know, somebody's mom <laughs> came to visit who uh, worked on the show and she was almost in tears because she wanted to be an astronaut mm-hmm. when, you know, when she was young. And she just felt like that's the closest she's ever going to get, you know, and we all get to leave our boot prints on the moon as you're walking around on the moon's surface, which only 12 people in the history of humanity have ever gotten a chance to do. So it's, it's just a really great experience. I think it's for all ages and everybody just seems to love it. Well, my understanding is that as a creative director, you're orchestrating this process from conception to execution. Did the mm-hmm. process for space create any particular challenges? Yeah, I mean, honestly, everything we do at this scale is a challenge and we're constantly breaking new ground and having to come up with new workflows. Um, A lot of what we do in creating the actual visuals is very similar to the visual effects you might do that, you know, that I've done and other people on the team have done for film or TV um, or commercials, but it's, it's the scale of it that's such a challenge. It's about 20 times the size of 4K footage. Um, Mm. So, you know, I think we calculated that it would take something like over 9 million hours to render every single frame um, that you see in there because they're 22 foot high ceilings and it's just such a big space and we wanted it to be as realistic as possible. So rather than relying on game engine um, technology, which a lot of other uh, immersive experiences do, we really wanted this to be really, really high end to the point where some people have actually come up and asked if we were able to film on the moon, which of course we didn't do. <laughs> but that's, you know, one of the highest compliments we can possibly get is when people don't, they don't understand how we could have possibly pulled this off because it looks so real. That's excellent. Well, that kind of leads to my next question. Previous experiences had solid source material, like the Georgia mm-hmm. O'Keeffe experience had the art book that it came from, African safari footage for the other. Is this the first experience that was created completely from scratch? Yeah, well, I think the Georgia O'Keeffe one, um, I mean, that was all from scratch, but like you said, it was based on something that did exist. So yes, um, we've done very different types of shows so far. So Wild, uh, the safari experience, they went and they actually filmed on location. And then, you know, we broke apart the paintings and and made it immersive from Georgia O'Keeffe. So yeah, this is the first one that's, again, really high-end CG and, and, and graphics, um, just unlike anything else. So this was a tremendous challenge, again, I think just to get all that computer power up and running. And, you know, you have to go through a whole pre-visualization process, which is something we're able to do in our lab space, which is most people don't know it's there, but it's just a door or two down from the venue on the belt line. 
where we built out a corner of the actual room so that we can go in and see things at full scale. Because if you're working on something you know, on your computer screen, you might think that the speed that something's moving or the size that it's at is accurate to you know, what it should be, but then you go look at it at 22 foot high and you realize it's, it's much too fast, it's much too slow, it's too big, it's too small. So going down and having that lab space has been really, really valuable. Oh, I can imagine. The exhibition starts off very grounded in American space history with the actual audio between Mission Control and America's first astronauts, but it moves from there into the unknown. How much of the exhibition is science versus science fiction? Right. That's a great question. Um, So most of it, really all of it is based in science. We spoke to a lot of experts. We did actually use some NASA imagery. Um, The planets were originally still frames that we got from NASA that we were able to breathe life into and and, um, add motion to. Um, But we do also have a a scene where you're on the surface of the moon and we have a bit of a time-lapse effect. And then we, we bring you to the future and there's a moon city, you know, which is based again on what people think the colonization of the moon might look like. So that part is potentially science fiction, but also somewhat in the realm of of where science could take us um, not that far away. And you are incorporating a lot of factual information within the experience about the solar system, about America's space program. Is there an aim for school groups to experience this? There is always an educational component that's available to school groups when they go through. There's extra pamphlets with just information on them. Um, But then, like you mentioned, we also have some text and some information um, on the walls to help people understand what it is they're looking at. So that's also great for the school groups as well. When you were looking to incorporate the NASA footage, how did you decide which historical clips to use? A lot of it, honestly, when you're working at this scale, comes down to what looks good um, at that scale. And it's not just because a lot of it's old and grainy, that actually held up better than perhaps we thought it would. But if a piece of footage is too shaky, right, if there's too much camera shake in it, that's something that's not very pleasing to look at. So we wanted things that held up well at that scale. And also just really, again, gave you that sense of awe and wonder. We have these amazing pieces of uh, footage in there where, you know, you're inside a capsule and you're looking at one of those round windows back at the earth. And it's just kind of that sense of, it's just tremendous awe. I think the only way to describe it, you know, like you've seen them, we've all seen those photos, but seeing them at that scale and feeling like maybe you're really inside a rocket ship, looking out at the stars or looking back at space is just incredible. There are two rooms that incorporate this exhibit. And so when you go to the Illuminarium, you step into one room and you have an usher who is dressed like an astronaut to try to immerse you immediately into the experience and set you up for what you're about to do. And I couldn't help but be reminded of theme parks and Mm -hmm. the way that they incorporate people into what you're about to experience. What was your inspiration behind having this element? I think it's, again, just helping people to understand what it is they're about to experience because Illuminarium really is different than any other place. So it helps people just get a sense of what the show is going to be. And we just kind of mention, you know, how it is that you can move around to the next room when you get in there and and let people know that you can interact with the content because it's not um, a physical contact. There's not buttons and things. So you understand that you are the thing that's moving around and being tracked by our LIDAR system that you can 
you know, interact with the show in that way. So it's just a way to kind of get people to understand what it is that they've just stepped into and what's coming. So you mentioned the LiDAR system and some of the interactive elements earlier. And then you mentioned the smell thing. I got to tell you, I didn't smell anything. It depends. Sometimes I think when you go in there of how strong the, the scent machine is is pumping out at the time. And it is more subtle for space. I think it might have been more noticeable um, in Wild or Georgia O'Keeffe. But it's again, it's just kind of if you look out for it, it's that slight metallic or that kind of trace of gunpowder smell that the astronauts say that they smell when they come back into the capsule after doing a spacewalk. Oh, that's so interesting. So it's hard not to think about the crazy timing of this show and the Mm -hmm. web telescope pictures that have come out recently. Would you have done anything differently if those images had been available to you prior to creating the space exhibit? You know, it's interesting. Um, I think there's a few things that have come up from those images, just seeing the extra color um, in certain things. But we also were surprised that, you know, we we did get pretty close to it. Um, you know, looking at the nebula images, for example, um, that we we feel like we did a pretty good job capturing what a, what a nebula looks like. I think there's maybe, you know, some of the galaxies are a little bit sharper, but everything's kind of kind of how it was before. So I think there's probably not much that we would have changed. Melissa Graff, Executive Creative Director for the Illuminarium. Space is on view through the end of October, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series highlighting local musicians, speaking of music, today features Indie Star. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis. Thank you for being here. It's time now for our series, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from local musicians in their own words. My name is Indy Star, Indy with two E's, formerly known as Indy Killed the Pop Star. My real name is Jennifer Zoof, and my music can be described as a blend of many genres from indie pop, folk, alternative, even hints of psychedelia, dream pop, soul, jazz, and heavy roots in classical. I play guitar, piano, and harp, and recently I've been learning how to self-produce. Sweetest soul that I My music journey began very early in childhood. I was very lucky, born into a musical family with a mother who's phenomenal, and she was playing piano every single day on a very high level. And I also was exposed to my grandmother and her piano playing. Both of them taught me piano formally starting at age five. I went on to majoring in voice in college. It was classical. It wasn't anything like this where you write your own songs and you record everything and then you play live in a completely different instrumental setting. But I had a very, very rich musical background and upbringing. 
Atlanta will always be home to me because I pretty much grew up here. I came here when I was seven. My family is here. I did all of my schooling, including college here, and I'm well into my 30s. So if I ever move away, Atlanta will always have a soft place in my heart. The story behind Sweetest Soul is it's about finding that pure, true love that comes once in a lifetime, but realizing that you have no control and no power over it. Whether this person will be with you, whether you will be together or not, is not up to you, and it's up to the force of nature, whatever you believe and what is meant to happen and you just have to surrender to it. It's so powerful. It's about love, it's about heartbreak, it's about how beautiful love is, but also how much it can break you. Skilki Nastakik is a collaboration song about the Ukrainian war that I was very lucky to be a part of. One day when scrolling Instagram, I came across this incredible artist by the name of Mary Druganova. She was living in Kyiv and her and her family never fled the country. They were surviving it, just taking a risk every day as shells flew above their home. So one day I decided to record some harp tracks, message her if she wanted to make a song with me, and to my surprise, she did. Later, she added percussion, her beautiful vocals, piano, authentic field recordings of Ukrainian singers and instruments. Dmitro Bulanov wrote a beautiful poem as he and his family fled the country, and those became the lyrics for the song. The song is now released streaming on all music platforms. What inspires me and motivates me has to be my mother. She's my biggest inspiration, my grandmother who has passed on, and matters of the heart, whether it's in our personal life or an external, historical, cultural, societal event like the overturning of Roe and Wade that directly impacts us as women, or the Ukrainian war, me having both Ukrainian and Russian roots, these are the things that mean something to me, and so I write about them. <laughs> 
currently working on my first full-length album with my band that I hope to finish and release in the next coming months by the name of La Bohemia. Sweetest Soul will be a single on that record. I also have a, an entire album that I made with my mom by the name of Moonlight that you can find on all streaming services under my name, Indie Star. And again, as mentioned before, Skinki Nastakich is already released and streaming and you can find it either under my name indie star or mary druganova druganova is spelled d-r-u-g-a-n-o-v-a musician indie star and our series speaking of music more information about Indie Star is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., comedian and comedy writer Ms. Pat joins us ahead of the season two premiere of BET's Ms. Pat Show. Plus, we'll hear from the founders of the High Low Gallery and Arts Collective. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org. There you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.